1: Hello again everybody and welcome to another episode of Talking to Change, a motivational interviewing podcast. My name is Glenn Hines and I'm based in Derry, Northern Ireland and as always I'm joined by my very good friend Sebastian Kaplan in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Hey Seb.
2: Hello Glenn, good to see
1: you. Yeah and you too man. We're meeting on a Sunday today. The sun is shining in Derry. We're still in lockdown. There's talk coming out of the UK government that some restrictions will be lifted in the near future The Republic of Ireland, which is just about four or five miles from where I live, have already scheduled a four-phase return starting on the 18th of May. So it seems like we are seeing the beginning of the end of what we've been through for the last six or seven weeks. How's things with you over there?
2: Yeah, well, it's obviously the US is a very, very large country, and each state in some ways operates semi-independently, and so some places, are reopening already, right. and beaches are packed, and restaurants are having customers come in. And and in North Carolina, we are not quite reopened, but the data as far as cases and fatalities and things have been quite positive overall, and as much as you could say that, relatively mm. speaking. Sure. So I, I suspect we'll be opening up or reopening sometime this month. It's May 3rd today, so we're looking at a reopening, I imagine, gradually, but certainly starting this month. But other places, of course, much harder hit, New York City in particular. Mm. So it'll be a, a longer road for them, I'm sure.
1: Sure. And I suppose even just noticing that, that the fact that we're talking about change and our podcast is on change, we're going a little off piste today in our conversation in that our guest, Michael, contacted us and asked if we would be willing to have a yarn with him. And we spoke to him a few weeks ago and we felt that what he's got to talk about well, it's not motivational interviewing per se, it is about his journey to helping other people change. And we were curious, given the fact that we've spoken about CBT, Cognitive Behavioural Therapy and his relationship to AMI, We've explored self-determination theory and motivational interviewing. We thought, let's have a chat with somebody who doesn't necessarily practice what we would consider motivational interviewing, but has seen people change and just be curious and see if Michael can teach us stuff about what he's doing and examine why it's working. So that's the conversation we're going to have today. It's we're off piste and we're free forming as we go along. And so we're really excited about that. But before we do, uh, Seb, if you could just remind the audience of how they can contact us on social media and our email.
2: Absolutely. So we have Twitter page is at change talking. Facebook is talking to change. And Instagram is Talking to change podcast for direct email communication with us. It is podcast at gleheinz.com and just a real open invitation for feedback, comments, rates, reviews, and all the like. Fantastic.
1: So on with the show. And like I say, we're very, well, we're very we're delighted to welcome our guest, Michael Arderberry. So hi Michael, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. I'm
3: really happy to be able to join you guys. Like you said, I may not be right there on the target, but I think I'll be able to give something to your audience. Hopefully some jewels that they can take with
1: them. Fantastic. Yeah. Like I say, we're excited about that. And normally at this point in the podcast, we would be inviting our guests to describe their journey towards motivation. So consistent with where we are at, maybe we can just say, you know, can you introduce yourself to the audience and, and, and give us insight to how you got to a place where you are now helping other people change?
3: Definitely, you know, but I want to start with a story, guys, and it's about a, a donkey and a farmer, all right? And this donkey is one of the farmer's favorite farm animals because once he finishes working on a farm with the donkey, he brings the donkey back to his home and he allows the donkey to play with his kids. So the kids come running out the house, they come out, they play with the donkey, they wash him, they ride him. Then when the evening is over, the farmer releases the donkey back out the farm. They go inside, they eat, they go to sleep. And this is the general routine that they follow. One day he comes home, he brings the donkey home, he releases him back out to the farm. But then the next morning when he comes out, the donkey is, doesn't come when he calls him. So of course he's concerned. He starts walking around the farm and he's trying to find his donkey. Can't find him, but finally he heard him making noises at the bottom of an empty water well. So he walks over to the well. He looks down. He decides he wants to pull him out of the well. So he's like, oh, what am I going to do? He gets six of his friends. They come over. They look in the well. And they decide that they're going to use some rope to pull this donkey out of the well. So they all get some rope. They start to lasso the donkey down the well. They throw it. They miss him. They throw it. They miss him. They finally throw it by his hind legs. He steps into the rope. They shimmy it up his body. And all six of them brace themselves. And they start pulling they pull the donkey moves. They pull the donkey moves. Then halfway up the well, they realize that the donkey's too heavy. So when they realize that the donkey's too heavy, they lower him back to the bottom of the well. And now this farmer has to make a grim decision. And see, he can't feed this donkey food at the bottom of the well for his family because that doesn't make any sense. He can't starve him because starving him is more like his pet. He couldn't really feel peace with that, so he couldn't starve him. One of his hot-headed friends said, hey, listen, just shoot him. He's like, nah, that's too violent. So one of his more reasonable friends said, listen, you don't want your kids to fall into the well. So what we're going to do is we're going to shovel dirt into the well so your kids don't fall in, but you're going to have to sacrifice your donkey. The farmer was able to deal with that. They all get their shovels and they start shoveling. Every time that dirt would hit the donkey, he would scream. Every time it screamed, it would give the farmer some distress. Dirt, scream, dirt, scream, dirt, scream. All of a sudden, the scream stopped. When the scream stopped, they gave the mo- donkey a moment of silence, but they keep working. Dirt, dirt, dirt. The next thing you know, you see the donkey's right ear. They start shoveling cartoon style. Next thing you know, you see half his body. They keep shoveling. And the next thing you know, guys, that donkey walks right out of the well. Now, every time that dirt came across the wall, it would fall on the donkey's back. He would shake it off and he would step on it. And he used the dirt that was meant to kill him to save his life. Now, I tell you that story and you ask me to explain who I am. I am, in a way, the donkey in the story because what I've been able to do in my life is I've been able to shake the dirt in my life, step on it, and walk out of my own personal water well. I grew up in a house with a raging alcoholic dad, raging with a capital R. I grew up in poverty. Both my parents worked full time. My mother was a housekeeper and she had a very low wage. My dad used his money to drink in the streets. So she raised four kids with just one salary of a maid. Dysfunction in my neighborhood and in my family, you know, in my neighborhood, people were going to prison. They were getting hooked on drugs. And so I didn't really have positive influences pushing me to be a successful person. Like I said, I grew up in poverty. But the bottom line is this. What motivates me, what pushes me, and what makes me on fire to help other people is if you look at my life on paper, there is no reason I should be doing what I do today. And that's what gives me the passion. The fact that I did it, I liked to be able to put people in a position to go after some of the things that may have fallen through their hands and through their grip because of some of the dirt, like I referenced in the donkey story that they went through in their life.
2: The story there really marks the process of responding to threats and responding to challenges and climbing, shaking them off, literally it is in the story with the donkey. It's sort of taking each of those experiences as, more of a foundation from which you elevate yourself. It's something that you realize in yourself and then somehow it led you to think that this is an experience that others are having and perhaps my experience can help others who haven't yet discovered how they might do it themselves.
3: I can expand on that, yes. That's exactly what happened and what happens is the passion has that foundation on change. See a lot of people don't feel that they can change and so they become paralyzed. Fear makes you paralyzed. So when you have people, you know, I talk about the dirt in the story and shaking it off. I think part of the process is you have to figure out first what you were able to overcome before you can start your journey. And a lot of people are in fear of going back to touch what they've gone through because what they've gone through has caused so much pain that it's easier for them to bury it like the dirt than to unravel it and start to touch it. You know, I'll tell you real quickly, my sister's around 60. I just told you we went through the craziness in my house. So she started going to therapy and she starts to unravel some of the things that went on in my house. And some of the stories I could tell you guys were like lifetime stories. Like we could make full time, like movies from the things that I endured as a child. So my sister's playing this off a therapist, a therapist is breaking it down. They're starting to get to some of the foundations of the things she does in present day. And she calls me up and she says, I'm not going back. And I'm like, why aren't you going back? It was too tough. And she said, I'm 60 years old. I live this much of my life. Why would I want to cause myself that much pain? And so, you know, I had to kind of give it to her, but I didn't really want to because my firm belief is that 60, if she can live another quality 20 years, it will trump the 60 that she lived in that freaking chaos. So, you know, that's part of my motivation as well. Living a quality, peaceful life. I think we all deserve that as human beings.
1: So your desire is to assist people achieve whatever is possible for their future. And and what you're describing is one of the ways that you feel that that can be achieved is help them to... Examine what what it is they've endured, but to examine it in a different way and to try and understand it. Yes, it was painful. Yes, it was threatened, but it also was the foundations of who you became. And your sister made it to sixty. Uh, would yeah, which would seem to suggest like you're like yourself, having gone through what you've gone through. You are proof of something quite significant in relation to strengths and talents and abilities within you that allowed you to shake that dirt off and to to grow into adulthood, and now to want to give something back. And that's, that's something that maybe we could we could tease out a little later on. What is it about the qualities of who you are and your sister? But also to recognise, it sounds like you're saying that when you're working with individuals, they don't yet recognise themselves. The fact that they've survived this long says something significant about them, something, something, something significant and positive about them. And it sounds like part of what you do is help them to almost reframe the experience in a way that allows them to consider what, how can I use this to help me live a, a different life in my future, having already been through the dreadfulness of my past? Proper perspective. No matter how horrific
3: this situation may be, you can look at it. I feel that you can, and I try to teach it, is that you can pull something from it that's positive. I'll tell you one thing with my dad, God rest his soul. I'm not gonna bash him over the podcast, but it wasn't a great relationship. And my house was like I said, in a really, really a crazy way, but there's something that he he left for me. He didn't leave me how to be a father. But if you push me and you start to back me in the corner, that man that used to come through that door and used to terrorize my home will show up. Now I don't like to be that person, but if you don't have a little bit of that in you, then you put yourself in a position for people to take advantage. And I know when he's coming. So when I'm getting into a confrontation and I'm feeling like I'm getting pressed, and you know, it's almost like a box, and I'm backpedaling, I'm backpedaling, and I'll finally say to somebody, I'll say, listen, I just wanna tell you something. I'm a peaceful person, but I bite. And that bite is my dad, and in that silver lining is the fact that he did leave me something that people, can push and press, but I do have a limit. When you go through things and they can be dark, I think that things grow in dark places. In the dark places, things grow almost like a seed being planted in the soil, but we water it, we nurture it, and as it sprouts and it grows, it can become something a lot better than what it was in its original form.
2: The experience you had growing up has kind of led to certainly a growth in a direction away from that kind of day-to-day life experience, both for yourself and your family, in a very intentional way. Like, I want something different for myself and the people that I care about. And you've also managed to develop this, not just awareness, but almost an embracing of the parts of you that are still connected in a very powerful way in an undeniable way, with those experiences, and even with this person whom you had this really complicated relationship with. And so there's like this balance that you've struck of, I want to distance myself from that and create a different life. And I'm bringing with me, inside of me, two situations that I feel will be helpful for me to tap into that. There's quite a balance there of
3: how you've managed to respond and grow from the challenges from your early life. I call it breaking cycles, all right, breaking cycles. And I want to do it in pieces for you. So breaking cycles, and I teach this to people, is that we have a tendency to create dysfunctional systems within dysfunctional programs. So if you come from a dysfunctional situation, rather than fixing it, you just create a system that works within that world. So when you talk about, I use almost the polar opposites of both worlds. You know, I had a situation when I, my house that I grew up in rarely had heat in the winter. I mean, I remember a winter night, I'm going to bed, no heat, I'm crying underneath my covers. And as I'm crying, I made a promise to myself that when I got older, my kids would not have to live the life that I was living at that present moment. So I'm about maybe between eight or 10, and I go to sleep. And when I wake up and I start going through my life, like you're saying, using both lives, I'm realizing that when I get to a point where I really am struggling, I think about that moment underneath my covers. And sometimes it would become the catalyst to push. But also what I'm thinking is any time that my life was consistent with my present life, it was an indicator that I wasn't on the right path. I knew that my ultimate goal life could be nothing like it. And so that's what I use as a gauge. Now, I'm saying this because I get older and I have my own children. And what's beautiful about it is that I graduated to a life that's better because I made good decisions, but I broke the cycle. My kids don't have to graduate to the new situation. My kids only know the second half. So the cycle has been broken. My kids don't have to wake up in the house without heat. My kids don't have to wake up in the house with an alcoholic father. My kids don't have to wake up in a home in poverty. And so what I believe is that you have to make your pain profitable. And I teach that. To go through something and not take some riches from the, what you have went through is a catastrophe. Mm. You go through something that bad and you don't have something that you've brought with you from that experience. I think you've done yourself a really, really an injustice. So, you know, I use those two lives, but my big thing is about breaking cycles. And I'll say my siblings broke it, but they didn't break it as quickly as I did. And so my kids see their cousins and they see, wow. Okay, this is what it looks like if a cycle's not broken. So we go to barbecues. Their cousins are not all like them, mm. but I love it because they get to
1: see both sides. So again, it's back to that. It's almost like the diamonds in the muck that you recognized that that decision you made as a child that you were determined that your life would be better than your your life as an adult would be better than your life as a child, and very significantly were you to have children they would have a better life from the beginning than you had at the beginning so there was a desire for you to move forward and grow and develop and your hope again it's central to what it is you're describing is that you you bring a message of hope to every situation that no matter how dark things are even the idea that things grow in the dark and seeds begin in the darkness that when you go to talk to and work with the people you work with, your hope is that they experience... To see that, first of all, that the the past life is over and the future life has not yet started. And in this present moment, it's about those decisions that they can begin to be making now. And one of the decisions that you invite them to do is to think differently about how they've made sense of what happened to them and to examine what... What were the characteristics? What were the innate those parts of themselves that made them keep keep going, and then to use that for the future that 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 drive that you've had, you're now actually celebrating the decision that that eight year old made. That you know, I no doubt if we were to speak to that eight year old now and, and let him see what Michael's at now, he'd be a very proud boy that, at, at the work and the, the the journey that he's completed at this point. Every so often we we power. You
3: know what I'm saying? I talked to him. You see, that's the part of my gift. That situation I just told you, I can pull that up in my memory, lay in that bed like it was yesterday. I have the ability to do that with many of my life situations. And so part of my teaching, and I start most of my groups and my motivational talks with that donkey story, because what I want people to understand is I want them to grab the dirt and shaking it off. And I want them to use it Because when you can use something that powerful, people are able to associate. So when you say take them back, what I wanna do is I wanna take them back in their story. I want them to see the landmines that they may have stepped on in the process. But see, when we step on a landmine in the process of life, there's some damage that occurs, but you don't know it. So you stepped on a landmine, you didn't get killed, but you got damaged and you keep moving but you've now strategically set up your life around the damage that happened. So what I do is I take you back to when you stepped on the landmine and you say to yourself, wow, I had no idea that situation really affected me that way. So now that you have an understanding that that happened, it could be 10 years old, 12 years old, 20 years old, now you stop and we say to ourselves, if we knew at that time that the damage occurred, what would we have done differently from that point forward? So you can't change what you've done up until that point that I meet you, but now it's time to restructure the rest of your life so that you have that quality life. See, that's why my sister didn't understand that at 60, if she continued to go to unpack that information, she could now, with work, create a different life That could be peaceful. It's a shame for her to be laid in her grave. And I'm not being morbid, but I'm being honest and not being able to live in peace. You know, I don't have nightmares about the things that I went through as a child. She probably does. But see, one of the also the gifts that I have is with working with people. It's therapeutic. I go to therapy every day. I go to work to get paid. I mean, come on, guys, you can't get nothing better than that. So when I go and I help others with their story and I share my own story, it's therapeutic and I just get to continue to do that. So, yeah, we go back and we touch that dirt and I let them touch it. But what I also tell them, guys, is you can touch it. We're going to stay here for a little while, but I don't allow anyone to stay. And so we do a lot of debriefing to make sure that you don't stay back in that past, but you go back and you experience it on a certain level. A
2: couple of these ways that you phrase concepts or patterns i suppose like breaking the cycle or noticing the landmines is you're taking either your own story and, and your own self or helping another person it's not that they're not aware that things are happening to them they experience those things very acutely on a day-to-day basis and they're in it it's like you're inviting them to step away a that like the breaking the cycle In order to do that, you have to notice that there is a cycle in the first place. A lot of times when you're in pain or difficult relationships or you're, you know, whatever it might be, addiction or abusive home situation, it can be hard to step out far enough because you're so focused on survival or whatever it might be to notice that there's a pattern that's emerging and a cycles there. And perhaps... As the eight year old boy crying under the covers, there wasn't a whole lot of agency that you had to change that situation. But there was a decision that you made at that point. You chose to decide in that moment, something that no one else could have decided for you to say, my life won't be like this when I'm able to take hold of it. It's a starting place for yourself and for a lot of the people that you're working with is just to become more aware of the things that they're a part of in, in the cycle that's kind of surrounding them.
3: Teenagers and adults, I work with both, but with a teenager, is great because when I catch them that young, I call it a rebirth. I'm a man, a spiritual man, and they're talking about being born again, but it's a rebirth. Like what you said, Sebastian, that's powerful. When you have a new revelation of your life, and when I watch a teenager get it, I mean, this is a teenager that's been carrying this weight And sometimes it's not even being able to fix it. When you say they go back and they get to see the landmine, step outside of it for a moment to really get a grasp of it. It's a rebirth because in the midst of the chaos, they saw no way out. Mm. When you step out and you look in, now you get to see there's points where, you know what? There's ways that I can really maneuver this. It's powerful for a person to go back and say to themselves, and then make the connection to actually see a behavior being played out because of something that actually happened to you in your life. So that the next time the situation happens, not to say that you're gonna do it perfectly, but you now have options. So there's some guilt with that too. I've now figured out, wow, me and Mike, we started vibing about this. You know what? What happened to me as a kid has set up like I use a concept that I use be the driver of your car rather than the passenger of your car. And real quick, I'll just tell you this. It's, it's real quick. I tell stories. I hopefully I'm not holding up your time. But anyway, my wife brings my daughter down to my man cave. I'm watching football to say goodnight, and so when she comes down to say goodnight, she comes over to me, I put her on my lap, I hug her and I kiss her, and then I release her back to my wife, and actually my wife's about to pick her up, she's four years old, I said night, beautiful. When I said goodnight beautiful, my daughter looks at my mom and she starts laughing, she says, mommy, did you hear what he called me? He called me beautiful. And I'm like, you know, I'm after dad, I'm like, wow, that was a good one, I was good. But doing the work that I do, I said to myself, What if I said goodnight up? What if when she came downstairs? I said, hey, listen, didn't I tell you about bringing her downstairs when I'm watching a game? And I start berating her with this aggressiveness. Four years old, guys. But then it's five, then it's six, then it's seven, then it's eight, and now I'm talking to a high school group, right? So as I'm talking to them, I'm, I'm running them through these ages, and then I bring it to the age of whatever group I'm with, and I say to them, okay, she's 14. She's at so-and-so high school. She's sitting in your class. What does she look like? And then the kids will start telling me she's dark. She has poor relationships. She has bad relationships with men because I'm a man and I represent a boy. And so I had them look at all of this. And then I finally say to them, I say, yo, listen, who's driving a car? And they're like, wow, you driving a car. And then I explain to them, I'll drive a car when she gets married. She'll get married and... I'll keep driving a car. She'll get she'll get married, have kids, and I'll keep driving a car. And I explained to them that until she takes her keys back, guys, I will drive her car forever. Mm. And so what I explained to them is that they have to take back the keys of their car and become the driver of their car because if not, something else will control it. So when you think about that concept and we talk about landmines, There's people in this world that can be 40, 50, 20, 19, whatever the case may be, and they're not driving their car because a situation or a person is driving their car, and until they realize it and don't take back their keys, they're not the controller of what they're going through.
1: What that seems to suggest, then, is that one of the things that you're doing is, first of all, letting people become conscious that these life events that are – normal for them at some level don't have to be normal and and probably weren't fair or useful for them as children but they did happen and then you become the driving instructor because I I guess that I wondered when you told the story about your sister was it that she felt that maybe she wasn't ready to learn to drive her own car that she she was content enough just to let the journey continue she she was happy enough that it was over, and just ready let the let life free as it is, without disturbing too many things. But yours seem to be suggesting that with the right support, you can move from the passenger seat into the driver's seat and decide where you're going from there on. But there's a transition between the two places. It's, it, I don't know if it's if you're suggesting that it's like like a like a, a like a revelation, and all of a sudden you start driving. It sounds like a lot of people are going to need to be taught to change position and learn to drive. People have to do is another thing that I teach is you want
3: to set goals, but the goal is only placed so that you have an end. So you want to have an end because if you don't have an end, you can wander just forever in the wilderness. So you want to have a stop point, but you don't want to overwhelm yourself with the goal what you wanna do is you wanna to learn to deal with the moments. See, what I wanna teach people is that you have to learn to live in the moment rather than chasing after the destination. And so in the moments, I call them the process and that's the journey. So when you say become the driver of your car, I tell them that you're not gonna do it overnight. It now has to be part of that creating new systems but also what I let them know so that they don't get psyched down and think that once they finally get their keys, that they're safe, is that, yo, people will take our keys on a daily basis. Let, check this out. I'm the master of this. I call myself the master encourager. But let me tell you where my keys got taken. It's hilarious. So my brother-in-law is not an athlete, and he's not into athletics. Now, I don't have anything against him for that, but I'm Joe Athlete. My kids are Joe Athletes. My daughter had a state soccer game, and my niece had a birthday party, and we told them we weren't coming to the birthday party because of the state soccer game. My brother-in-law lost his freaking mind, so he started going bananas. Now, he's not yelling at me. He's yelling at his sister, so I can hear her in the other room. She's on the phone. Now, what I want to do is grab the phone and just tell him, listen, you better back off, but I don't want to get into family business. So I'm walking around and I'm allowing this situation to bother me. And I'm going in and out of my groups with the teenagers and I'll talk about it. It's not disrupting me from working, but it is on the top of my brain. I finally go to a a group. I teach the concept of being the driver of your car, not the passenger to a group of high school students. And once we get into the groove of the teaching, one of the students in the room says, hey, and in my groups, we go by adjective names. So my name is Mighty Mike. So... The teenager says, hey, Mighty Mike, guess what? I said, what? He says, your brother-in-law's driving your car. (laughs) And when he said it to me, I said, oh my gosh. And so, you know, that's just prime example. But the beauty of it here, see, this is the teaching point, is when he said, your brother-in-law's driving your car, immediately, guys, immediately, I took my keys back and I said to myself, I'm not gonna give him another moment of energy. So as soon as I realized where my keys were, I took them back, and the rest of that day, I was good. And so until that point, I would revisit it and get really angry sometimes, and nothing was even going on, but that's a firm way of the process and how we have to slowly move into it.
2: A lot of your stories are making me think of some of the parallels to motivational interviewing and more so like the kind of relationships that you develop with the people that you work with, the quality of those relationships, some of the concepts that might fit in both worlds. There's certainly a belief that you have in other people and in their potential. It's like an assumption that there is good in everyone, regardless of the stories that they bring in, regardless of the choices that they have made that led them to your program or to your group or whatever it might've been. I mean, the whole concept of taking your keys back, there's quite a bit of autonomy in that. And yeah, that's certainly a concept that is very important in motivational interviewing, supporting people's autonomy to choose their direction in life. And an acknowledgement that ultimately it is the other person's choice to make decisions for better or for worse, depending on the situation. And even that story where the kid in the group challenged you and kind of said, You know, hey, who's got your keys? There's a safety that they must feel with you, a partnership, a collaboration that they must feel with you that they can push you on something. And that also feels very much consistent with some of the things that we might really strive for in motivational interviewing conversations. You know, Michael, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about in more detail, the context of the conversations you have, like what's a typical day for you like? What's the kind of work that you do that might help people have a better visual of, uh, okay, here are these concepts and these cool stories and this really compelling backstory and how
3: does it come out in practice? Let me say one thing that you brought up that was really, I think is important for all of us in the work we do is authenticity. Authenticity is powerful. And if you're not authentic, what you're trying to sell ain't going to sell. And that's the bottom line. I'm going to get into the concepts, but that is right there, the root, because I'm authentic to the point where my wife doesn't like to take me to parties because I can't put that sucker away. I'm the type of guy, if I'm sitting in the room and I sniff it out, I'm going after it and I'm not gonna attack you, but I'm gonna tolerate it for a certain amount of time. And if it gets really bad, a bunch of rumor fake people, I'm grabbing my coat, I'm getting in my car and I'm leaving. So authenticity is big. But second to that, what I do is to give you an example, my program that I do with high school students, it's two full days and it's full with interactive activities. As I'm telling you these stories, these stories will come out in the process of the fact that I've put together a series of activities that build off of each other, that create this environment of comfort. Like for instance, one of the first activities I do when we come in, I call it adjective names. Like I said, they call me Mighty Mike. Before we even start the process, I have them detach themselves from their names and become an adjective name. So they have to think of an adjective that starts with the first letter of their name that describes their personality. And for the two days, they have to say their adjective name first, anytime before they have to speak. And that's who we call them for the next two days. So Mighty Mike, Adorable Ashley, whatever the case may be. So they have to start with their adjective names. Then I run them through a, uh, an activity, which I call Affirmation and Tools. I'm just going to do a few so that you can see the building blocks. The affirmation in twos, I have them speak for one minute about all the good qualities about themselves to a partner. Then I have the partners speak to them about one minute of the positive things. I have them introduce each other of what they remembered, but then I debrief it and we start discussing what would it be like if I gave you one minute to list all the negative qualities about yourself? And they'll start to talk about the fact that it's easier to think of the negative things. And I say that because... What people have to understand is that we're products of our thought lives. We have to be careful of what we think. And one more that I want to explain to you to get in the concept, and we can go a little deeper, but I'm trying to give you just a vision of it, is one we do is called concentric circles. This one is powerful, guys. And what I do is I put them on the inside circle and the outside circle, facing each other. I give them five subjects that they got to talk about. The first one is, who do you respect and why? What are the qualities you look for in a friend? If you had the power to change one thing in the world, what would it be? A time that someone that you love hurt you, violated your trust, and a time that you lost someone you really cared about. I have them speak for one minute to a partner and I rotate them five times so they speak to five different people. Once they finish speaking to five different people, I bring them out into a circle. Everything I do is done in a circle and we debrief it. And let me tell you something, before I go into saying anything, all I say to them is, do you feel it? Guys, the whole room shifts. Five questions, they sound very simple, but these people, just like we said authenticity, have just told things to people that they've never told before. And so the whole energy of the room has shifted in a 15 or 20 minute period. But this is the magic. The magic is this, you walk into a room, you sit in a circle and you look around and you see nothing but faces. You go through this activity and you now look around and each one of the faces become people. It's magic. It's what humanity is missing. And it's terrible that we can't do it on a larger scale but those are just some of the few of the concepts. Now that's just two activities and we're not even through three or four hours of day one. And I just keep taking them on this journey. And the further we go, the deeper we go. And by the end of those two days, when you say, trust me, they don't just trust me, we're family.
1: It's a very humanizing experience that you're describing and, and very strengths focused. The exercises you were describing there were, were about, we can, we can talk about either side of the spectrum but we're going to focus over here. And it sounds like the reason why you're doing that is you're understanding the negativity or the criticism or the shaming thoughts that they have. They're very well rehearsed. They don't need to practice that. And there's no benefit of going back over it again with somebody else. But the new piece is the idea of even having an affirming adjective in front of their name and for that to become who they are for the two days they're with you. And just to have that experience of reinforcing it for themselves by naming it, name giving themselves that name, you know, Gregarious Glenn, and doing that over and over and over again. The idea is that some of that is likely to seep down into my experience of myself and therefore dilute some of the negativity that's there. But also then those affirming exercises where they again have the opportunity to talk about themselves. And what strikes me about that is one of the important underlying theories that the performance motivation would be self-perception theory. And that that idea of I learn who I am as I hear myself speak. And if I'm having an internal dialogue and it's negative, then that's been reinforced. If I'm having an internal dialogue and it's positive, that's been reinforced. And what you're doing is inviting people to reinforce the positive and develop new foundations on which they can build a different perception of themselves. But also that beautiful idea that where you describe the experience of being in a collective of people, so they're no longer isolated. These kids may be other kids from school, but all of a sudden their perception of who they're with has shifted too because these faces now have a human dimension to them. And on that relational level that feeds the human need, and your idea of if we could all do this more often, then the world would be a better place. Sometimes I'm called in the schools where there's issues
3: with the different groups. It's sad for me to say this, 2020 guys, but well, I'm gonna drop it on you. I get called in the schools, man. I'm talking about it's like the '50s civil rights movement. You got suburban schools pushing out to some of these predominantly white neighborhoods, and they're not feeling it. So they don't want these people in their backyards, and the tension in the buildings are tremendous. So when I go to a principal, when that, when, so I got twenty-five to thirty people, kids in my in my room, sitting in the circle, and what I ask for is a cross section. So I want white, black, Latino, struggling student, honor roll student, and I want them all sitting in that circle. And when you start talking about that human side, what they find out is that not only are we human, but our definition of other people comes from, so I'm black, African-American. If all my friends are African-American, black, I have no white friends. We have now defined the white race from black people. Now, how the heck am I gonna define you? I've never met you before. I don't know nothing about you. And so that's how stereotypes work. So we walk around this earth with this definition that we put forth in our brain. So what I love in these groups is not only do they realize that we're human, but you got the black kid looking at the white kid and he's saying, hey, wait a second, you're nothing like what I have down on my cheat sheet. And so what it makes us realize is again, is that you have to dig a little deeper. And one of you mentioned it, living conscious lives, man. You know, I think there was a statistic and I, hey, I think it was like 90% of the world live unconscious. I mean, that's crazy walking around with people that are just floating. No, you got to really be in touch with the world, not only to be effective, but to be able to navigate it on a really, really special level. I was watching a documentary on a guy that jumped off the San Francisco Bridge, and he survived. When I saw this, I'm, I'm intrigued. And so as I'm watching the documentary, they take him back to where his apartment was. Now, to get to the bridge, he had to take a bus. He had to take a cab. I think he walked a little while. And so I'm like, wow, dude, you know, he really wanted to do this. But you know what? Some part in the interview, they asked him, or he gave the information, and he said that one person would have looked at him and said, hey, buddy, it looks like you're not okay. He said he would have called it off. Mm -hmm. So, you know, living a conscious life and being connected, you have no idea the power if not for yourself, but the power that you can have to help other people.
2: Use the word connected. And I was listening to what you're saying while also connecting it with some of the other things you had said before and correcting if I'm wrong, but just getting a sense of the kind of work that you do and the kind of change that you're inviting people to embark on that it's feels more global. It doesn't get narrow into you know someone who has a problem with alcohol or diabetes or you know those kinds of narrow not that they're simple of course,' it's very complicated changes to make, but it's sort of like the change is about the building blocks that change could then occur from and whether it's a change in one's belief in oneself and what one is capable to go forth with, But also these groups that you talked about, and there's the connection to the word connection, is that a lot of these exercises you're talking about, while very strength-based, as Glenn highlighted, they're also very interpersonal. And it's about creating perhaps a different climate or culture in these schools where people aren't separated or segregated like schools can often naturally get into. And it's trying to create a different climate in those schools so that now As individuals, they believe in themselves in a way that they perhaps didn't, but now they also believe in each other in ways that, and understanding each other in ways that they wouldn't have ever thought possible before becoming involved in your program.
3: I'm in a community for the greatest impact when you talk about change. A school doesn't just have me come in and do 25 kids. They get a package of a minimum of like 100, but we can pump that number up to whatever they want. So I'm in a community, I'm embedded. And so the culture of the school is changing. So I go out into the community and I do an adult workshop about my concepts and my program. And we're going through the program and a lady stops the group and she says, wow. She said, I walked into that school And I felt the change and I didn't know where it was coming from. And I got chills because I saw the fruits of my labor. This woman felt that peace in the building because one of the greatest things you get from my group, there's multiple, but the empathy and the level of empathy is beyond. Check this out. One of the activities I do, it's at the end of the two days, it's called personal share. The last activity after the two days, you have to bring in an item that means a lot to you. So you gotta go home, sit in your living room, look around the room, and that item that you really think really speaks to you, you bring it in and you share it with these 25 people you spent the two days with. Everyone goes in deep, they bring back the item. At the end, we go around the circle and everyone shares. Always emotional, very deep. But to show you the level of empathy, I have a girl in the group who sitting in a circle. She pulls out a picture of her and her dad. So when you see the picture of her and her dad, immediately you're waiting for this story of all this beauty. But she tells us that he called her two nights before to talk about how he should have aborted her, how much he hated her and wished she wasn't born. Now, we couldn't believe she was sharing this, but remember, it's personal share. It doesn't have to be something that's beautiful. I require a minimum of two teachers in each group there's a teacher three people over on his lap is a picture of him and his family in a portrait. He's crying so hard snot's running out of his nose because he's looking at this girl who's going through this horrific time. He's about to show his family that eats from a silver spoon and he can't even talk. And I say that because now he has to go back into a classroom and teach students And look out into that audience of that students, and he will never Mm. look into that classroom audience again
1: Mm. the same way after he went through that two-day experience. Again, it's deeper than he's gone back into students. I think what you, you are describing is you're humanizing those kids for the teachers. So they're not just students. These are people that have backstories and that... They have lives too and it's not he's going to teach the maths. It's that he is with these people and they happen to be talking about maths for a couple of hours every day. But if he can notice that, then chances are how he teaches, how he understands why the homework is late, why the homework isn't up to standard will make much more sense and I guess soften his response and make his response much more meaningful and considered. And in that people who are listening will recognize, as you described, that empathy, that ability to step into another person's world and see it from their perspective without judging it from your own lifestyle. That, okay, he may have a really settled home life, but being able to go into that girl's world and recognize it, there's a lot of disturbance going on in her, her world at the moment. But there's something he can be doing for and with her in the context of that that he's not going to change what her father said there but he can change what he as an adult male how he speaks to her and that in itself can be very positive and that can be some of the light that can be some of the nurture that exists in some of the dark places for kids or people it's not only humanizing the kids to the teachers. Kids get
3: to see the teachers as well. Mm. See, when they come in the group, the way the material is set up, guys, it sneaks up on you and it bites you. So you get people coming, hey, listen, I'm not going to tell you anything. You see the students do it. I just laugh when they say Even teachers, you get teachers that are coming they're a little pissed off that they got picked to come do this program, and you sit in that circle, and let me tell you, before you know it, you're sucked in. I had a woman on personal share, a female teacher, tell the group that she was molested by her father. Mm. Never told anyone in her life. She picked 25 students that she's only met for two days to unveil that. But the power in that, because I got a social work background, is I know how like that woman felt when those words left her lips, because that was a weight that she had been carrying mm. for years. Imagine a kid saying to themselves, not only should the teacher treat the student differently, but the student has to give a different respect to the teacher that's in front of the classroom as well.
2: You talked about the lightness that teacher likely felt like an outcome of this share maybe a conclusion of this two-day experience for that teacher. Just wondering what you think are some of the outcomes that you seek to find or to to have happen with the groups and your program that you've developed. And I guess along those same lines, what happens after the two days in terms of your connection and work with the schools, the, the groups that you've had, and that sort of thing?
3: My goal is this, is I want you to have an individual experience so you get to self-reflect and do you. In the process of doing you, I want you to be able to build community with people that are not the same as who you are. So you wanna build a community within the community within the building. But I wanna send them back out to the building to affect, like you've mentioned, the culture of the entire building. So that's my ultimate goal. That's why I do 25 at a time. But what I also do is before I start to knock them off 25 at a time, I do an assembly so that I plant the language of my program with the entire building. So I do a motivational talk to each grade so that when they get the specifics in the group, you don't have to be in my group to know the language that we speak in my group. And so what happens is it creates a culture in the building, and that's sort of the goal that I would like to have overall. But my contact with them is... I continually come back to do the groups. I do large gatherings with whoever gone through it by mid-year. I do a larger gathering with whoever went through it throughout the year. The name of the program is called Power of Peace. And so what we create is what, what I call Power of Peace families. And I actually call these students that go through the program my surrogate children. So I have two biological kids, but I have surrogate children all over the place because these kids, you, you go in like we go in. This thing is really personal. And so I'm in and out of the buildings. They have access to me. And then with social media, you're only a direct message away. Anyone's able to follow me after the groups and I get them. I get the message in my box. You know, Mighty Mike's, I'm, I'm having a hard time. If it's something I can walk them through, I will. If it gets too big... I'm always connected directly to the therapeutic staff in the buildings because there's some groups where some of these kids don't even go home. They've dropped something so big in a group that they have to be removed from their homes. And so it's done. So I'm connected to everyone of importance. And I never let a kid leave my presence if I feel that they're not in a safe
1: place. Your description there of changing the culture within the system. I'm sure that the audience will hear how infectious your own enthusiasm is and that belief in individuals whose lives within their own experience is quite negative or challenging or restricted that then they meet a guy like you who comes along and focuses so much on the positive, focuses much on the strength while recognising the challenges that by helping those individuals both teachers and young people shift their thinking. To a new direction, it's almost like their change and their their orientation of true north has shifted slightly. They experience the world slightly differently as a consequence of spending time with you, and that you know a rising tide lifts all boats. That everybody in that school gets it because enough people got it, and that it's not an in and out. That you're encouraging people to become their own advocates. You're encouraging people to be continue to develop and maintain the relationships that they've begun in the groups for their own well-being, but also potentially for the well-being of others. What strikes me is that the type of love that you're describing is that agape love, that brotherly love, that will sing the same tune as anybody who's practised motivational living. How we manifest it is slightly different. What's interesting is the story started with a well, and I think what you're saying is we're all drinking from the same well when we practise motivational living, when you practice what you're doing, what CBT practitioners are doing, is that this all rises out of the same well, which is our desire to be Together in this journey, in our desire to love other people so that they can become themselves and to be loved ourselves. As a community, we're stronger together and you want people as individuals to believe in themselves. And the more people who believe in themselves, the stronger the community becomes. And that then we can wrap our arms around those further out and more isolated. So it's almost like an exponential journey that the more people who get it, the more people who can get it. Because of the magnetic nature of well-being and trust and hope. And faith.
3: And I'll tell you this, not to over-spiritualize it. I heard a woman speak, or I think I read it in the book, and she said when she left a room, she wanted a person to sniff and say God was here. That's part of my goal, guys. I'm not trying to be anybody's guide, but when I leave the room, I want to leave a certain aroma, and I want to leave a certain essence. You know, I heard a song, and it said that if you're looking for him, I hope you find him in me. And being a spiritual man, you know, I may be the only God that somebody will ever meet. And I just say that because, you know, I was on a podcast and I'm doing the podcast and the woman at the end, me talking about spirituality, she says to me at the conclusion, looking at me with this big smile on her face, I never met God and she didn't finish it. (laughs) And I knew what she was saying, guys. (laughs) Left a certain essence with her. And I was proud to do that. That's part of my goal. Maybe the...
2: A spiritual movement or experience of something is another outcome that maybe if it's not explicitly a religious one, it certainly can be for some people, but they're maybe hoping for some sort of really significant fundamental shift inside somebody that certainly could be religious or in a broader sense, a spiritual experience. Mm -hmm.
1: So we've come, we've, come, we've come to the point in the conversation, Michael, where we invite our guests to describe something that maybe, maybe isn't related to what we've been talking about today, but just something that's captured your attention recently or something that you're interested in that you might want to share with us.
3: What really interests me, first, the virtual world, being locked down in COVID, my world was a little small. So podcasts and things of this nature, I never thought about doing the podcast. I'm, I'm really having a great time doing them. I also uh, developed an online course. Online course, I call it the Shake the Dirt Experience. And you know what's come over me the last few weeks is, of course, I I put it together to to make a little money, but I'm gonna start my first group off free of charge. I just really feel that people are in need right now for something to give them some clarity and some peace. But it's an 11-week course. They meet with me for an hour each week, and we, we do just like I've talked about over this podcast. As I walk them back through this story, I allow them to look at their landmines and let's start to customize a life that can bring you peace, prosperity, and a really good quality life in there.
2: So another example of adapting to the current world that we're in to bring the program that you've developed from an in-person model to a virtual model and perhaps something that'll stick with you and, and the people that you work with beyond once everyone's back to, with at least the opportunities to engage in life the way they, they were before.
3: Definitely global. You said global. I went to a branding conference right before COVID and he talked about global awareness. So when you talk about global, my reach is very short here. I'm, you know, I'm in the Northeast and Connecticut, but when you're on the internet, where are you at again, Glenn?
1: I'm in Derry in Northern Ireland. Yeah, man,
3: look at that. See how powerful that is? And we're talking like you're sitting in my kitchen. So, you know, when you talk about global, for me to be able to have those type of people on my course and being able to talk across the world, it's a vision coming into to full circle.
1: And given the fact that reach is important for you, one of, the, one of the other things we do then is we offer our guests, if people who listen to the episode, if they're interested in reaching out to you, Michael, how would they do that?
3: They can reach me at my motivational website, com. They can go to my nonprofit website, which is youthvoicescenter.org. If they're interested in that course, they can come to shakethedirtexperience.com. I'm taking the first 20 members that sign up and we're rocking and rolling. So they can find me at those three. And then my my, my social media pages, Facebook is my name, Michael Lauderberry, LinkedIn, my name, Michael Lauderberry, and so
1: forth. And just on the social media then, as we move closer to the end then, Seb, do you want to just remind people of our social networks? Absolutely. Facebook is Talking to
2: Change. Twitter is at Change Talking. Instagram is Talking to Change podcast. And direct email communication would be podcast at
1: com. Well, Michael, thank you very much for giving up your time today and just sharing your enthusiasm and insights and the journey that you've been on to, to where you are now and your desire to be helpful to young people and adults alike and your enthusiasm and dedication to what it is you do. I wish you every success in this journey that you're describing about spreading the word globally. And uh, perhaps we'll talk again and again in the future. All right. All right. Thank you very much, guys. Thanks so much, Michael. Thanks, Seb. Take care.
0: Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone.